0: Hello, I'm Jessie and I'm Cece and this is Spectra Ensemble's podcast, Performance in Progress. Here at Spectra HQ, before we were all shut up in our houses, our focus for a couple of years had been on giving new life to existing operas which perhaps hadn't had enough attention when they were first written. Scott Joplin's Chumanesha and Ethel Smythe's The Bosun's Mate. But before that, we created a couple of new operas with two brilliant composers, Dan Chappell and Lewis Kernan-Rowe, both of whom you might have heard on the podcast before. Now, it feels like it's been a bit too long since we last worked on new music. So today we wanted to spend a bit of time thinking about just what it's like
1: to work with a living, breathing composer in the room. We've got the brilliant Susanna Stranders here to help us work through those questions. Susanna is a British pianist, conductor, repetitor, and luckily for us, a trustee of Spectra Ensemble. She is currently on the music staff of the Royal Opera House, Covent Garden, and previously was head of music and chorus master at Garsington Opera. Over her career, Susanna has had a high exposure to collaborations with living composers, but more than that, Susanna is also a highly regarded teacher. Through her work at the Guildhall School of Music and Drama, a place where she also studied herself, Susanna schools the next generation of opera repetiteurs. So Susie, welcome. With such extensive experience working with living composers, could you perhaps give us a sense of the diversity of these collaborations?
2: I've been really, really fortunate to have worked in contemporary opera in all sorts of guises. One of my first experiences was when I was an artist diploma student at the University of Cincinnati. And there was a world premiere of a piece called The Memory Game by Joel Hoffman, who was professor of composition at the university at the time. And so I was a student coaching a student cast. And Joel Hoffman was, you know, with us for most of the process it was in some ways a wonderful way to begin my journey in world premieres because I was learning how to, you know, work on a new piece, but I was also helping other students learn how to learn how to access a new piece. So I felt like I came away with tools of all sorts of different shapes and sizes after having worked on the memory game apart from the fact that the opera was in Yiddish so (laughs) it it also required rather new linguistic um, skills as well Um, so that was in Cincinnati and probably nearly 20 years ago Um, and then since then I've also worked on community operas uh, or people's operas uh, when I was head of music at Garsington Opera uh, I conducted Road Rage by Orlando Goff and also uh, Silver Birch by Roxana Penufnik. Um And that was also fascinating, having a stage peopled with members of the community um, from age sort of five to 95. Some people had sung before, some people had never sung before. Uh, some people read music, some people didn't read music. Um, and so... <sighs> Having to get the music off the page in that scenario was a whole different thing. In fact, most of us taught the music by ear because, as I say, the majority of the cast did not read music necessarily. And that was fascinating because it proved to me that although being able to read music and, uh, you know, obviously as an experienced musician, you can decode all the symbols and signs on the page and that's wonderfully helpful, but it's not the only way to um, learn so (laughs) um, that was a very interesting thing and then in a more sort of international professional setting um, I've had you know many experiences with fantastic composers and librettists and singers perhaps one of the most um, fruitful in some ways for me personally was the skating rink by David Saw at Garsington Opera just because I felt my relationship with David was one that began very early on in the process. Um, He would send me drafts of acts that we'd go sit around the piano and play through together. And then he'd send me another draft of the same act with with a few tweaks. And we'd again, sit around the piano and play it and sing it and talk about it. And that was really lovely to have that very close relationship with David. Um, I didn't actually play rehearsals for that in the later part of the process, but, uh, but because I felt very involved in the sort of the cracking of the egg in the uh, at the very, very, very start, it, I, I felt somehow closer to that piece than some of the other premieres I, I've worked on.
1: Goodness, where to even begin with that wealth of experience? Just incredible. You've mentioned your interaction with some of these composers, and um, I imagine that there's a huge variation between how light a touch a composer will take with the rehearsal process of their new opera. And so I wonder whether you can give us some insights into the benefits or not of having the composer in the room as the process unfolds.
2: Um, Well, I think it very much depends on the project, doesn't it? Because something like the Hoffman piece I was just talking about, very much a student process where I think it's all hands on deck and I think composer present from day one is essential. As I keep saying, the singers are at a point where they're still learning how to learn and I think you need that expertise of the person that's written the piece in order to help them with the vocabulary of it, with the delivery of it, the communication of it. When you're dealing maybe at an international opera house... I think on the whole, you want to feel that most of the music has been learnt before the composer turns up, on the whole. Not always, but generally you want to feel that the singers have been well-coached, well-prepared. Then the composer can come and see, at that point, how things are gelling and perhaps Mm -hmm. then start adding things. Interestingly, um, there's one composer, George Benjamin, who apparently works very intensely one-on-one with the singers before production rehearsals start because he is very, very much um, a composer who likes to have his finger on every single pulse um, and wants to make sure that what he has written is absolutely communicated in the right way. Um, and so he, it seems that he actually wants to be very, very much involved in the page-to-stage process from the beginning. Um, Harrison Birtwistle is a composer who is very happy, I think, from my experience, to trust his colleagues to coach the singers, help them learn their roles. And then, although he'll be there for a lot of the process, he's quite happy to just sit back and let everyone else create the piece, create, get the music off the page. Mm. Um, So I think it does depend on each different project each different rehearsal room um, and what the vibe is. Anna Nicole, the Mark Antony Turnage opera, very interesting, because it's a sort of, it's an opera, but it's it's close to musical theatre in its style. And I felt like the process for that, there was a lot of workshopping, a lot of let's get up on our feet and see how this works. Should we add a couple of bars to the vamp there to introduce this character? Should we this or that? There was a lot of cutting and pasting and adding things and getting rid of things. Um, and I think in a musical theatre world, although hands up, I haven't worked in the West End, but I'm presuming that that's a more uh, the way that that sort of collaboration might work on a West End show. And I feel on Anna Nicole, there was, it was a very, very much a collaborative thing composer librettist cast conductor director everybody just sort of jumping in and and seeing sort of getting getting down and dirty with it you know (laughs) um so I don't know if that answers your question Cece but I think I think the composer's presence will uh, you know vary depending on who and where and the type of piece
1: so we've talked a bit about these different ways in which the composer might position themselves within the operatic production process. I suppose I'd like to ask you, Susie, because you're, you know, a very fine and well-established repetiteur and conductor, what is your role as a repetiteur in this situation? Or how, how do you see it? Is, is your role as a repetiteur different when you're working with a totally brand new school? And... And how do, you, how do you see the kind of priorities and imperatives of what you're doing in that rehearsal room?
2: It's a really good question. Um, well, if I first of all put on, obviously as a repetiteur, there's many different aspects to my role. One of the first things that I might be expected to do in a new piece is work one-on-one with the singers in a coaching um, scenario. In that instance, I think it's really important that I'm able to sight-read very well, (laughs) make sure that I'm absolutely inside the piece as much as I can be, but actually not to play everything I'd say at that point. It's not overly helpful to just throw absolute thousands of notes at a singer in a coaching and expect them to find the right pitch in a 15-note chord cluster or something. You want to be able to offer them a really clear line through their role where they can see the wood for the trees. And that's actually quite difficult because as musicians, we're trained to play everything we see on the page. But sometimes, especially with new music, which might be extremely busy and extremely dense, you need to clear away quite a lot of stuff to begin with. And then as the singer grows in confidence and the role gets deeper and deeper and deeper in their, in their body, in their breath in their voice, in their uh, acting, in their communication, then you can start adding on the layers of the other things that they can start to listen out for. But as a rep, I think judging those things is really, really important. Um, I mean, obviously, the thing that I take a huge pride in doing is rendering at the piano what the orchestra will sound like as, or at least as close as I can to that. Now, if it's a Mozart score, I think we all pretty much have an idea of what a Mozartian sound is from the orchestra. And so we can all imagine how that piano will translate onto the strings in the woodwind. When you're dealing with a brand new piece, we, our ears are not attuned yet to what we're going to hear. And so it's m- up to me to find, with my imagination and with my ten fingers, the closest possible quality of sound at the piano, that we're gonna hear when we move on stage with an orchestra um and that's tricky it's really tricky it's, it's it's really challenging and very exciting but it's not easy um and some composers i think are easier to do than others with with, with that side of things um tom adders i played his 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 opera the tempest which is a fantastic piece and it is so difficult to play. It is just chock full of notes. And it's, it, you know, we're using every note at the piano. High, low, chord clusters, rhythms that are polyrhythms that go against each other. I had such a headache learning it. Um, but Tom Addis is a very, very fine pianist himself. So it's not surprising that the piano vocal score is virtuosic, to say the least, but one thing is, once you have got all that under the fingers and in the body, and you're and you're playing that wonderful, wonderful piece, when the orchestra takes over, actually, it's not that much of a rocky transition. George Benjamin's piano reductions are extremely difficult to create that orchestral quality, um, so much so that. My colleague, Chris Willis, who's worked with many, many living composers in his career, he actually has written a two-piano reduction. So he's added another piano part to try and give George's music as much of an opportunity to sing from the piano, to speak from the piano as possible. Rather than having 10 fingers, you've got 20 fingers. And with 20 fingers, you can create more of the orchestral strands, I guess, that make up the fabric of his work but as a rep it's we're forever digging deeper and deeper to try and find what is it that is going to help the rehearsal room appreciate the sort of orchestral textures and sonority that we're dealing with especially with music that maybe we're not that familiar with yet it's you know it's it's quite a big responsibility but it's very rewarding
0: when it works this might be uh, a question for the uninitiated. I think it probably is. Um, but how do you how do you learn how to do that? How much do you need to know about every single instrument in an orchestra in order to be able to create the sound with ten fingers? I think you need to you need to have a good
2: understanding of all those individual instrumental colors and. A deluxe version, also have an understanding of how those instruments are played. A game I play with my repetiteur students at the Guildhall School of Music is I will ask them to put a syllable, a syllabic sound to an instrument. For instance, a flute might be foo 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 or something, whereas maybe the French horn is more sort of ba 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 or wah, wah, wah. We play around with different sort of imaginative vocal sounds (laughs) that we can then try and put into the pads of our fingers. Mm. If it's an instrument that has quite a percussive start to it, I don't know, maybe, for instance, it could be um, pizzicato in the double bass or something. If you think about what it is to do a pizzicato on the double bass, there'll be a sort of a picking up of the string and letting it rebound onto the fingerboard, and then you try and put that into the piano, you will probably get quite close to finding the right length of note and right quality of note. Of course you're not going to sound like a double bass. But thinking what that player looks like and having in your oral uh, imagination what it will sound like, often the pianist's body and fingers will find something quite close it's extraordinary, actually, the power of just the imagination to make it work.
1: I have never heard anyone put it that way. This idea of, as a repetitor, you even embody the physical language of other instruments into the way you play the piano. That is... Yeah.
2: And an, another big, big thing which I'm learning still is that if you watch a conductor put down a downbeat with a good orchestra, the orchestra breathes as one... And there's a slight delay to the sound. And that breath, as well as a repetitor, you need to find that under your armpits as well. <laughs> I talk a lot about breathing under the armpits, but you learn that micro timing as well. And conductors who know really about how to conduct opera, they love it if their repetitor breathes like an orchestra breathes.
1: Wow. That sounds, it's, you may, I mean, it is the most epic job in the room in so many ways. There is so much going on
2: <laughs> a lot of pianists fall into the trap of i think uh, trying to, again what i was saying trying to play what's on the page as a pianist would um and actually that's the last thing i want to do oh yes i want to play the right notes and i want to make it sound correct but i also need to you need to just think outside the pianist box so much um to find the right quality of sound and it's, um, I, I don't know, it's it's, it's interesting. The longer I, I do my job, the more I strive to find these orchestral textures that work. Um, and I think some singers might not notice what we're doing, but I think, if, if I'm being honest, I think that they will feel enabled to sing better when it's done well at the piano. They might not realise that they're being enabled to sing better, but they will be singing better.
0: <laughs> and is it, is it nice for you to feel that they understand what your skill is is bringing to the table or do you actually kind of enjoy operating as like more of a silent enabler? Yeah, I don't know. Once I got some very lovely feedback from a singer who said
2: singing with Susie is like flying on a magic carpet. <laughs> and I, I always, <laughs> forgive me if it sounds like I'm bragging, but I just thought how wonderful. is he, he? I don't think he knows exactly what that magic carpet is made up of, but he obviously feels that he's able to fly, you know, with with what I'm producing. I think the person that really acknowledges and responds closely to what I'm doing is, of course, the conductor. And the two of us can have a dialogue and an understanding that then the whole room can pick up on and, 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 and feel enabled by. I use this word enabled a lot because I really feel that the best leadership in the room should be a, a one of enabling rather than controlling too much um but it's 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 a language that a repetiteur and a conductor will definitely share
1: on this question of conductors and the relationship between the conductor and yeah. the repetiteur, just circling back to the question of living composers there are of wow. course some composers who conduct their own work And I wonder whether you've ever been in a scenario where you've worked with a conductor-composer and what that's been like.
2: I've been thinking quite a lot about the conductor-composers or composer-conductors, because you asked me when we were chatting a little bit, Cece, about if the composer has quite a lot of say in production choices. And I would say that the composer-conductors are the ones that have the most input in that sense. Because, of course, when they're on the podium, they're working right in the middle of the creative energy of the room, working very, very closely with the director to bring this thing to life. So I definitely think when the composer wears the conductor's hat, there is a lovely opportunity for them to have a little bit more sway in terms of what choices are made with the director. Um, I think that something that came up when I was thinking about this as well is that the composers that do conduct think about how they notate their music in a more practical way. Because they know that at the end of the day, it's going to be them on the podium with the orchestra in front of them, having to communicate what they've put down on the page. Now, Harrison Birtwistle, for example, has this, um, yeah, it's a sort of fanaticism, actually, with writing pauses. A lot of phrases finish with a pause. Now, that's fine in essence. We think, okay, we pause. we just wait for a bit and then we move on. Actually, in practical terms, that's quite difficult for conductors to navigate. It can feel very eggy. Well, I've got to hold this. Now we move again. Now I've got to hold again. And, and I think uh, uh, one time that Harrison Burt Whistle did conduct something, I think it was a brass piece he'd written, he got stuck at one of his pauses. <laughs> and I think he thought, I'm not going to conduct again after that.
1: <laughs> what about the librettist? Because I feel we've not yet talked very much about librettist, but of course they form. The other half of that partnership in in terms of creating the operatic text and I feel like in opera we talk we tend to talk more about composers and conductors dare I say than we do about librettists.
2: I can only speak from my own experience which is that they do seem to take a bit more of a back seat and it's not because they're not You know, they're hugely important. Of course they are. But there's I think there's more of a sense that once their words have been set, they're not that their job is done, but that there's no need for them to then feature in the rehearsal room. Although I'm saying that, of course there's so much that they could input in terms of how those words are communicated. But in my experience, the librettist does has not featured hugely in during the process. David Harsent was the librettist for the Minor Tour, um, and he came to a fair number of production rehearsals, but I can't give you one example of when he intervened for any reason. Um, so, yeah, it's weird. I I mean there's a very famous Strauss opera of course capriccio where with the big story is what comes first the words or the music and i don't think there's an answer to it i think they're both equally important um but there's something about the music giving wings to the words and that maybe that's why the composer is the person that has to be the pilot i don't know I
0: suppose that just the kind of timeline of it all links in as well because most often the librettist will write text that is then handed on to the composer and then it's handed on to conductor, director, performers, etc. Um, and so I suppose, you know, by the time you get into production rehearsals, librettists might well have kind of moved on to the next project and might not have it in their brains as much.
2: I think so. Um, the only example I've got of a librettist who was extremely involved was Richard Thomas on Anna Nicole. Mm. Um, I don't know if any of you know the um, the opera he wrote, Jerry Springer the Opera, which was quite a controversial uh, at the time. It was one of the first docu operas that was ever staged about real life people, um, mm. which I think has been qu- become quite a popular genre actually. Anna Nicole being one in itself, docu-opera. And Richard was very, very invested in his role as librettist. Interestingly, though, Richard is also a very fine musician. So he was very keen to talk collaboratively with Mark Anthony Turnage the whole time about how music and text and drama, how those three key elements were woven together. And there would, if he wasn't happy with the setting, Richard would make it very, very clear and he would, you know, fight to have things delivered in a different way. A fight makes it sound aggressive. No, he was just passionate about making sure that his very witty text to Anna Nicole was clearly put across. Um, but, yeah, that, it wasn't always easy, though, him being so invested, if I'm being honest, um, because you can't all be can't all be cooks in the same kitchen can you (laughs) Mm.
0: and actually Susie when you were talking earlier about conductor composers my kind of producer's brain was sort of going a little bit quickly and thinking oh goodness but like mm, a small part not all of but a small part of my job is actually kind of making sure that things are properly compartmentalized and maybe that certain people actually don't know certain things about the process just because it'll stress them out and that won't help the energy. Um, and obviously, you know, if you have a composer who is also conducting, it's a bit difficult to do that compartmentalizing. And I think, yeah, potentially also if you're um, if you've got too many people getting involved in sort of rewrites, a similar thing can happen. But I wonder that there, there always seems to be a little bit of a kind of stigma about composers also writing their own text. Um, But have you ever worked with a composer who's done that, Susie? And if so, did it work? I can't think of a single one right now. Can you?
2: Wagner, I guess. Wagner is the big one. I mean, I'm just thinking of contemporary living composers that that do that. Um, I do think, I don't know if you agree with me, um, that the most wonderful poetry that's ever been written doesn't need music does it it has its own music somehow um it's probably quite controversial what I'm about to say but sometimes a libretto doesn't need to be quite as perfectly crafted as I don't know two stanzas of a, a Wordsworth poem <laughs> Uh, that it could have its own structure, you know, repeating, I love you, I love you, I love you, maybe three times to make sure, which we might not have in a straight poetry.
1: This question of um, the libretto is a fascinating one. I know that playwrights, for example, or writers who make their first foray into opera are often quite surprised because they actually don't need to produce that much text. Um, because of musical repetitions and um, the way in which music changes the kind of temporal dimension of the poetry or or the text. Um, So it's quite a different skill. Absolutely, yeah. Uh,
2: Another piece that I worked on recently, a a world premiere, was at Garsington Opera when I was head of music there, the skating rink. And his librettist, a very talented young young writer actually um, called uh, Rory Malarkey he his first libretto uh, it was very very impressive but he did end up whittling away quite a lot of it because i think it's what you're saying cc just you need to get to the absolute kernel of what it is emotionally and dramatically you want to say with a with a phrase or a scene um, and sometimes too much text too mu- if it's too wordy we can sort of lose a little bit of the focus and direction of the drama. I know at Gilthorpe School of Music and Drama again where I'm on the staff there is an opera makers course which I think is a fabulous thing and young composers and young librettists get together and uh, and team up with each other and work at creating a piece from uh, you know from the very very beginning of the process. Um but I think I might be wrong. I think that's one of the very first courses of its type in the UK where the librettist has as much a say in the process as the composer
0: yeah i so su- i mean i suppose that actually as as opera um in the vernacular perhaps is a little bit is becoming a little bit more common actually the role of the writer is more important because you know people are going to understand that text and Um, It's not just going to be like a bodged translation either. You know, operas are actually being written in English much more than they were two centuries ago. That's, I mean, that's a
2: whole other podcast, isn't it? It's just (laughs) 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 operas in translation. But I think the best translators understand the music so well because that's the danger of it, is that when it's in its original language, of course, the, the... the text has its own inflection and rhythm, inner rhythm mm. that the bar lines can't get in the way of, um, and the person coming in and you know putting it into English or whatever has to make sure that whatever they find and come up with also dances in the right way with with the music.
1: It also raises this question of how closely or you know how practically the composer and librettist pursue their collaboration. Because I imagine um, the ideal scenario might be to um, to do what I believe James McMillan has done when collaborating um, with his sort of Katie Mitchell um, team, is to to go away together to, I can't remember where it is they go, I think maybe to Wales or somewhere remote, and just to work intensively as a, a unit of collaborators and I can see how for a librettist and composer being able to sort of work side by side could potentially be really useful. On the other hand um, I suppose there is necessarily a kind of separateness to their roles which is also really important.
2: I mean this idea of the sort of the librettist handing over their work to the composer to, to set is, it must be, yeah, it must be like giving birth or something, <laughs> it's like, I've been carrying this thing with me, now it's it's over, you know, you can give it breath and life.
1: I suppose the other agent who can be quite important, just thinking about this question of text, also in some cases must be the performer, because occasionally if you have the composer and the librettist in the room, and they see a performer who does something extraordinary that inspires them in some way, I imagine that can sometimes get captured. And I wonder to what extent, in your experience, performers can actually have an impact in that arena too.
2: Yeah, when you were talking then, I suddenly thought of vocal writing that is so extreme and so technically challenging that text gets lost actually at the expense Mm. of sound. And actually, it's one of the notes I give a lot in my coaching to singers, which is I'm getting lots and lots of beautiful sound, but I'm not understanding the text, you know, and sound and text are two, you know, the, you can't sort of pull them apart too much um, because this, the sound is the instrument of the voice, but the text has to sort of uh, float on top of it and inside of it. But... In The Tempest by Tom Adders, there's a role for a very, very high soprano. It's the role of Ariel. And it's almost impossible to hear the words up there. Um, And it makes you just think, you know, if I was the librettist and, yeah, you're hearing all this sort of vocal fireworks, but you're not getting any of the words how soul destroying that must be but at the same time you're thinking but i'm also getting a moment of such exciting drama and music am i willing to just compromise for you know a couple of words here and there because actually the drama says so much in itself Um, and I there's something to be said for that and there's been times actually when I've worked on extremely climactic moments of like Wagner's ring and things like that and I've gone down to the assistant and I said oh we're losing a bit of of uh, of text and stage at such and such a moment and there was one time the assistant a very experienced colleague of mine said you know I absolutely agree with you Susie but at this point we just have to roll with the sort of the dramatic wave of the moment and we'll let that one go you know (laughs) Mm. um so it's interesting isn't it sort of yes we want to hear every single word but sometimes the music and the drama might take precedence and that's okay so long as we're not going too far off piste i guess in terms of understanding
0: and who who in a rehearsal room would be kind of arbitrating between those competing concerns in your experience you know is is that partly your job is it partly the director's job
2: good question jesse i think it's all of our jobs as uh, as the team that are trying to you know ping this clearly off the stage mm. and weighing up is this maybe for instance that role of ariel is it text that we've heard four bars earlier down in a lower part of the voice and therefore it's just re- repeated or is it something that really is an intrinsic part of the plot that we need to understand and it's weighing up those things i think um, but I think that we're all in it together. Um, I, I'm i a big fan of very, very well-sung English, and I think it's undercoached. I think it's not considered one of the most important operatic languages. But there's a real technique to singing clear English. Uh, when I was working on Billy Budd, you know, I was constantly feeding in notes about when sound and text would get, you know, I'd often say, you know we, at the moment I'm getting eighty percent sound and twenty percent text, and we need to you know turn that around <laughs> a little bit um, not always, or sometimes um, a vowel quality would just not be pure enough, and so we're not where the core of the middle of the word might be be lost um, something a word as simple as love. You know, ah, that R vowel—is it pure? Is it simple? Is it clear? And if it's not, and we're hearing love or something else, if the ear of the first-time buyer in the audience is slightly foggy, is slightly unclear, they're playing catch-up for the rest of the sentence and trying to figure out who's saying what to what. And da, 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 da. so, the clarity of vowel purity and linguistic line <laughs> is is so important, and I I think English should be coached and taught I think yeah in a more concise and specific way for that
1: would you say it's I suppose taken for granted in the UK because it's just assumed that as the lingua franca here it doesn't actually need coaching and that's that's how the situations come about
2: yeah I think so and also I mean again a note that you hear given to singers so much is more text more text as far as I'm concerned. That doesn't mean anything. More text means, yeah. means that a singer stops singing and starts what I call chewing, you know, trying to... I, I'm trying to t- t- communicate something. that, And they stop finding their breath. They stop finding the line of the music. Clear English is not about lots of consonants being spat out like this. Of course, the consonants are important, but they have to be put on a line of pure vowel sounds. And then... That carries, in my opinion, to the cheap seats. Yes, it's uh, more this idea that English is this very, very syllabic, consonant heavy language, I think is not actually true. And it's a matter of putting the right quality of consonant sound on a line of pure, often Italian at vowels. I had a colleague once that we were working on Peter Grimes, another wonderful Britain opera and he he turned to one young singer and he said you must learn to keep your english vowels in italy and i couldn't agree more with that (laughs) now r e o u the pure italian vowels we have them in english as well and people forget to use them and there's a reason why they are so helpful to a singer of any age or stage in terms of creating a good line and finding a wonderful sonority in their singing um with clear text
1: but to play devil's advocate i suppose as a director or thinking visually about the experience of the performance um someone might say oh but you know there are titles often for operas even if they're sung in english and being performed in english so sort of why is clarity of text so important if you can just look at the titles
2: Oh, I knew someone was going to ring up Sir titles at some point. <laughs>
1: Sorry. <laughs> um,
0: I mean, if everywhere had great, great sight lines that allowed you to look in a continuous line from your seat to the Sir titles and then to the stage, maybe.
2: I think Sir titles are very, very important for all sorts of reasons. Um, but all I will say is my depth of enjoyment is enhanced if i'm not looking up and down at the surtitles all the time but that takes an investment also in my own homework
0: as well
1: i think subtitles is probably a whole other podcast episode jesse what do you think
0: <laughs> another one yeah
1: thinking towards wrapping up um i'm curious susie to hear based upon your wealth of experience what advice you have to give to young aspiring opera composers who are keen to write work which will get staged and be create a sort of intuitive and rich process for the collaborators involved in bringing that new piece to life
2: well, that's a really good question cc um and i think i'd approach the answer from two different angles actually Um, the one angle being perhaps more practical tips and the other perhaps more spiritual or holistic. Um, So in a practical sense, the first thing I would say is get to the theatre, go and see shows, go and see shows of all sorts, you know, operas, musical theatre, straight theatre, go to the greatest and grandest opera houses in the world or the smallest, most intimate venues, doesn't matter where, doesn't matter what, Just go and start to learn what works as a piece of theatre, what doesn't work as a piece of theatre, and just make friends with the world of theatre. It's really important. Second thing I'd say is go and sit in and observe voice lessons, or perhaps if you're a pianist, maybe even offer to play for voice lessons. It's the most wonderful place for you to learn about the mechanism of singing, good techniques of singing, and also how the masters, you know, I think of Mozart, Puccini, Verdi, hear how they wrote for the voice as well, because these students are more, you know, most likely to be studying repertoire like that. And it's a huge resource. I, when I was a young repetiteur starting out, I played for a lot of voice lessons and I learned a lot about singing. Um, And the third thing I say, which is um, a slightly, maybe a slightly more boring subject, but make sure you hit your deadlines. Um, Preparing an opera is a huge task. An opera is perhaps the grandest of all art forms and will take more time than you think. I I think at the Royal Opera House, I think people start thinking about opera at least two, if not three years ahead of the opening night. It takes a lot of thought and it takes a lot of, uh, uh, of planning. Also, remember that if you happen to miss a deadline, and I know these things can happen, but it's not, your, it's not just yourself that you're letting down. You're also letting down all of the people and the team that you're working with to help get this on its feet. So it's important for everybody that you make those deadlines work. Um and I can say as well for somebody that's worked on world premieres that you're i'm chomping at the bit to see the dots when it gets nearer to production rehearsals um so just bear in mind that it's not just you <laughs> it's a lot of people that um this uh, this resonates with um and that leads me on i suppose to the more as what i call sort of spiritual or holistic um considerations be a delight to work with it's a massive thing taking an opera from page to stage and it involves a lot of people and you might find that your vision or your thoughts might change during the process what you thought would happen might not happen and I think it's really important that you stay open to that and that other people that see your music for the first time and your, your setting of the text and so on um might have a different approach to it um and However frustrating that might be at times, I think it's very important that you um, try to, as I say, be a delight and stay open. Um, And I think the last thing I would say in all of this, Cece, is that you've got to speak your truth. At the end of the day, it's when we sit down on those plush velvet seats at the Opera House, or not, or maybe they're uncomfortable seats in someone's garage. I don't know where your your work is going to be performed. But I want to know what you have got to say. I want to hear your voice through the music text drama. Um, you're not writing to please anyone else. You're writing because it's what you feel. And that of staying true to the material and staying true to you is going to get you a long way.
1: Gosh, well, I really hope lots of young composers are taking serious note of this truly valuable advice from Susie
0: yes thank you so much Susie and thank you too to all our listeners um we've really enjoyed this conversation and we hope you've enjoyed joining us um please do stay tuned for the next episode of performance in progress I actually can't trail this one properly because we haven't decided what it's going to be about yet um but hey there'll be an element of surprise for you to look forward to